Listen to sounds, should they appear? Or feel your whole body sitting there? As a way of feeling into that relaxed, non-straining, non-contriving force of awareness. You don't have to improve the object of your awareness, prolong it, push it away, or do anything about it. The sound is appearing, disappearing, as are the sensations in the body. Feel your breath in this way, either at the nostrils or at the chest or the abdomen. Let your attention settle in the feeling of the breath, wherever it's most predominant, wherever it's most distinct. You can make a quiet mental notation of in and out, or rising, falling, to go along with that feeling. And then when other experiences arise that are strong enough to take your attention away from the breath so that they've become the predominant object, perhaps a sensation in the body or an image, an emotion, a mind state, one of the hindrances, train of thought, whatever it might be, See if you can make a quiet mental note of just what you're experiencing right now, in this moment. Again, you don't have to interfere. There's nothing you need to do about it, judge it, prolong it, obliterate it. Simply be aware of it and let the note be the symbolic representation of all of that understanding. It's like saying, it's okay that this has arisen. I don't have control over what will arise. What I need to do is simply be aware of it. All of this understanding is contained in that one word, thinking whatever notation we happen to be making. 
be with his experience for a few moments, perhaps a few minutes. See if you can let go and return the attention to the feeling of the breath or the hearing of the sound or the feeling of the body. Remember that they're only moments. You may wander far, far, far away in terms of the past or in terms of the future. <coughs> but as soon as you recognize this, right in that moment, you are beginning again. Okay, um, I think there will be, the question was about dependent origination, and I think there will be uh, further talks that, that detail all of the links. In terms of the practice, one of the most um, important of the links to look at uh, is the section that goes contact, feeling, craving. Um, the idea being that, in terms of contact, um, as you have heard, the, the Buddha talked about knowing the world in six ways and saying, this is it. You know, he called that discourse, which is very short, is called the all. You know, there are um, the six sense doors of seeing and hearing and tasting and touching smelling, and then what is called the mind or mind objects, which includes that whole range of uh, mental factors, of emotions, of images, of perceptions, of memory, and so on. Um, so those are the six things that happen to us. And <clears throat> the teaching is that, in terms of dependent origination, that every single moment we are either seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or smelling or experiencing one of these mind objects. And every one of those moments is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. When we see a sight, it's either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. We hear a sound, it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Even if we don't notice that consciously, that's, um, that's like part of the package. And it's taught <clears throat> that, okay, so we have contact feeling, and then the next link is feeling craving. It's taught that our condition tendency, when that moment of seeing or hearing or whatever is pleasant, is to grasp. Our condition tendency is to try to hold on to it, to try to make it stay, um, to keep it from changing. Our condition tendency, when that object or that experience is unpleasant is to strike out against it, to try to make it go away, to have aversion, fear, any um, of the, the different relationships that are embodied in that sense of aversion, you know, anger, rage, impatience, disgust, all of that. 
And that's another kind of craving. It's craving for it to go away. Uh, And then it said that if that experience of seeing or hearing or feeling in the body, whatever, um, is neutral, we basically are conditioned to space out. You know, we don't even feel it. And that's delusion. Um, And so that's that link. The feeling is going to come. You know, sometimes people have this idea that if they meditate, then um, everything after a while, when they become accomplished, uh, everything will be like this gray amorphous blob, and they won't feel anything anymore. Things won't be pleasant, they won't be unpleasant. And that's not the point. You know, according to this presentation, we couldn't do that even if we wanted to. Because in the moment of contact of a sense door with a sense object, in a moment of hearing, in a moment of seeing, there's pleasure, or there's pain, or there's neutrality. And that's it for everybody. It's not different when you're a supremely accomplished yogi. The question is, what do we do with that? That feeling of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. Can we be there? Can we be open to it? Do we get stuck in these old conditioned patterns of different kinds of craving, trying to hold on, trying to push away, or just spacing out. And that's why, um, in terms of meditation and dependent origination, that is a supremely important link. Because we're seeing and hearing and tasting and touching and feeling in the body and having mind objects all of the time. And we have the feeling tone of them all of the time. And right in that moment of fully feeling the pain of an unpleasant sight or fully feeling the pleasure of a feeling in the body, we can be bound to our old conditioning and continue to try to hold on and push away or losing it in delusion, or we can be free right in that moment. We have that opportunity to be relating to it, whatever it is, in a completely different way. And so it's not, um, it's not a theoretical or abstract teaching. Uh, it's very real all of the time. And uh, the story which I often tell, many of you have heard me tell it, um, is about my first experience in meditation when um, I was sitting with a teacher who would give a talk on just this section of dependent origination uh, very often because it's so essential, contact, feeling, craving. And um, I was sitting in a tremendous amount of physical pain. And I I used to have this somewhat extraordinary inner dialogue going on as he would be discussing these teachings. He would say basically what I just said, you know, six ways of knowing the world. And I would be sitting there thinking, boy, that's so inspiring, that's really incredible. I must have been a Buddhist in a previous life because I feel such a, an extraordinary affinity for this teaching. If only I could get rid of my knee pain, I know I could really get enlightened soon. You know, and he would go on and elaborate it a little more, just the way I, you know, I did. And every moment there's either a feeling tone of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. And if you react in the same old way, then there's bondage right in that moment. And if you react and a mindful, open way, there's freedom right in that moment. And I would be sitting there thinking, wow, that's so incredible. 
you know, I know if I could only get rid of my knee pain, I'd get enlightened like faster than anyone else in this room. And maybe what I'll do is I'll go down to that yoga ashram I heard about in South India. I was living in India. And, uh, maybe I'll go to that yoga ashram in South India and I'll, I'll do intensive yoga for six months and I'll really stretch out my body so that when I come back, I won't have any knee pain. And then I'll really get enlightened fast. And he would go on, you know, in some great um, elaboration of the teaching. And I would go on in some great protestation that the most important thing for my enlightenment was getting rid of my knee pain. Until one day it struck me that what he was talking about was my knee pain. You know, here was a, an experience in the moment of touch feeling that was unpleasant. How was I reacting to it? And what he was talking about was my knee pain. What the Buddha had been talking about was my knee pain. You know, it's right here, every moment. We're either seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or feeling something in the body which is touching or having a mind object. And every moment is pleasant, painful, or neutral. So what are we doing about it? You know, we, we get these, just as I did in a very uh, extensive way, we get these ideas that our experience isn't good enough. You know, it's too ordinary or it's too unpleasant and we have to somehow trade it in for something else, which is not the point. The point is how are we relating to it right in this moment. Contact is a given and feeling is a given and out of our control. Now what do we do? You know, so there it is. Yeah, Liz. The, um, as part of the feeling right, that also would include um, think, thinking of the mind creating a story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially in terms of feeling, is um, that quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. And then seeing what happens from that. Are you ready to go have experiences? <laughs> Thank you. Do you have any questions about anything you've experienced in your practice, sitting or walking or metta practice? Yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> um, well, these things are not easy to understand, you know, and, and I think that um, there's a great delicacy in language, in application, to, to get a feeling sense of just what each of these states is. In the sense that you're using equanimity, it's almost um, most pertinent, it seems to me, in, in a sense of, of equanimity as a Brahma-vihara. The metta is normally taught in a bundle of four practices, the first being metta itself, or loving-kindness, the next being compassion, and then sympathetic joy, or being able to rejoice in the happiness of others, and then equanimity. I always used to wonder, why is equanimity in there? It seems so different from the other qualities. But I later began to understand that, first of all, equanimity is not indifference. Just as each of those qualities has what's called its near and far enemy, uh, the far enemy being the clear, clearly opposite state, the near enemy being the sort of sneaky state that is close to the actual Brahma-vihara, but not quite it. Uh, indifference is known as the near enemy of, of equanimity. It's sneaky. You know, it, it can masquerade as equanimity, but it's not really it. Um, equanimity is not considered to be a state of indifference, of withdrawing, of not caring, of hardness or coldness or emotional deadness. It is considered to be a balance of mind, or sometimes we call it a spacious stillness of mind, which can accept, yes, this is how things are. As a Brahma-vihara, it's used to give courage and steadiness and endurance, in a way, patience, to the other three. So that, for example, if we're doing metta towards somebody or a group of people, it's easy to begin to do it with a little bit of a hook, like, well, I've been sending you metta all day or all month or all year, and you're not happy yet. Why not? <laughs> it's easy to fall into uh, expectation, a desire to control, and so on. It's equanimity that actually allows us to keep sending metta, even when this person isn't behaving exactly as, as we feel they should. And the same thing with compassion. We're wishing for beings or a particular being to be free of their suffering. But what do we do when it's a particular being who seems to be perpetuating their own suffering again and again and again through various choices and decisions and, you know, and actions? We either feel brokenhearted over this or, or uh, condemn ourselves that we could not make them change the way they are or we have some kind of courage that allows us to keep offering 
that wish that they be free of their suffering without feeling we should actually be able to control their behavior, which we cannot do. Uh, so it's, it's in those ways that we use equanimity. It's not to cover over or make believe that everything is okay, but actually as an underlying basis of some peace so that we can keep opening, we can keep trying to make changes, and we won't feel overcome or um, broken, broken up when that doesn't work or it doesn't work right now, or it doesn't work in precisely the way that we, we would like it to. It's that basis of saying, yeah, this is how things are, with some, some balance that, mysteriously enough, doesn't weaken our love and compassion and sympathetic joy, but it actually allows it to be boundless, without, without um, disintegrating at facing obstacles. Mark. Um, you all talk about, in one way or another, or alluded to uh, controlling these factors, and not controlling sitting in particular. And um, I know there's sometimes, though, that it's in my practice that it's easy uh, <clears throat> when things are not going away. Sometimes I think they're supposed to. And even that is a judgment that's subtle and hard to see. Sometimes there's little um, either mental or physical adjustments uh, that I make. And uh, I'm catching them more and more, but I'm wondering if there's any, um, <clears throat> any way to, to um, kind of see that earlier in the practice. The, um, there's a certain quality of suffering which I think is a good feedback system for that, either uh, in terms of thoughts or in terms of feelings, in terms of self-assessment. Uh, very often we have made a decision, whether we are conscious of it or not, about what our practice should look like. And so everything other than that that model or that ideal is somehow disparaged or disliked and, and we judge it, we judge ourselves and, and that is a quality of suffering that, that we can notice. We may not understand why right away but um, that actually becomes a feedback system. It's one of the ways in which, uh, you know, we talk about using noting as a feedback system. If you find yourself noting, thinking, <laughs> then that's a hint that there's a certain frustration or dismay that once again I am thinking or once again I'm having that same old stupid thought. Um, we use the noting, we use the body and, and just a, a general sense of um, awareness of that quality of acceptance or uh, despair over what is going on. I think suffering is the best feedback system over that. We all do that, you know, we all have these cherished hopes um, about what practice should look like. And it's one of the wonderful things about a long-term retreat such as this, is that you, you get to go through enough ups and downs and changes to, on a deeper level, begin to 
even somewhat believe, oh, that's not the point, but, but rather being able to be aware of all of these different states is the point. That's a difficult message to believe and somehow we need to go through it again and again and again. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily suggest contemplating impermanence and uh, selflessness, you know, because that um, is something just a little different than actually paying attention. Uh, it's interesting sometimes when we've worked with Upandita and I've sat in the room where uh, he's been doing interviews, listening in, and sometimes people will say, um, I had a great insight into impermanence, but it's a no-no uh, in terms of clear communication with him. What you're supposed to say is, this is what I saw. I was observing the rising and falling of the abdomen and uh, I saw very clearly that the rising was many discrete movements or I saw very clearly that um, the rising came to an end before the falling began, whatever it was, you know, that was the actual direct experience that uh, truthfully led to an articulation in the mind of, oh, this is impermanence, look at that. And the reason he does that is that the point of the practice again and again and again is to point us to our direct experience. These insights are truthful, you know, they, they may be important, but once we grasp onto one, we're off and running, and then it's, it just becomes discursive thinking. It's more... Sometimes I almost think like the meditation happens on a cellular level and, and we just keep paying attention to what's going on. We allow the transformation to work itself out. Sometimes it's clear what's going on in terms of a thought process or um, an insight. Sometimes it's not clear what's going on, but nonetheless it's, it's doing its thing. Um, and so as much as possible, if you can see those thoughts as thoughts, that would be perfect. And, and to experience the sadness um, as sadness and to let it take you where it's, it's going to go rather than uh, asking it a lot of questions. Somebody said that to me once, a, a yogi, which I thought was great. She said that uh, 
she was feeling a lot of physical pain and went through a mental shift of recognition that she needed, rather than to be asking the pain a lot of questions, asking it to explain itself, to reveal some, some inner truth or whatever, uh, she had to be with it quietly enough so it could speak to her. You know, so it's, it's a little bit of a um, dropping back and getting quieter and let, letting these uh, physical, mental, emotional states speak to us. Let them reveal what they have to say rather than us kind of getting in there and uh, trying to figure it out in some way. So if you can, you know, if, if that... Uh, if that is something that you can do at this point, I'd say, you know, really try to step back and see it in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, probably the sadness is a feeling and the content, the particular uh, application or expression is a thought. You know, if, if you have the thought, everything is meaningless, that's a thought. And if you have a welling up of uh, anger, frustration, sadness, grief, whatever, that's a feeling. And that uh, perhaps can be experienced in the body. Um, perhaps not, you know, it may, be, it may not be appearing there, but that would be the first place to look, to see if something is happening in the body. If not, then just in the mood state. It's like your um, great challenge at that moment is to be able to say, what is sadness? What is it? Oh. Okay, it's time to walk. Thank you. Vicky. Okay, on uh, two different levels. Uh, on the more theoretical level, I'm actually giving a talk tonight about doubt, so maybe, <laughs> maybe that will be uh, the uh, next stage in, in the investigation. Um, on the practical level, uh, it's very important to try to be able to note all of those states. Um, the thoughts we have about the practice, about the path, tend to be the most seductive uh, in terms of either getting completely lost in them, submerged, or 
judging them. You know, the great, uh, that moment when, say, we have been lost in thought, and all of, you know, what you describe, uh, except for the feeling of hopelessness, is, is on the level of thoughts. Um, that moment when we re-emerge is very tempting in two ways. One is the temptation to dive back in. Um, either saying to ourselves, well, you know, it's 20 minutes till lunchtime and this is important and I might as well just really try to assess this accurately and, you know, I'll note this afternoon, you know, I'll pick it up again this afternoon. Or um, the temptation on the other side is to judge either the content of the thought or the very fact that we've been thinking, uh, which is also an enormous waste of time. Um, and in a way, it reminds me of an experience I would have early in my practice, not so much with thoughts, but with physical pain, where I would sit down with the intention not to move, and I always moved. Sometimes I'd move, you know, five minutes into the sitting, or 10 minutes into the sitting, or 20 minutes into the sitting, or whatever. And often I would judge myself for the entire rest of the sitting for having moved, which was an enormous irony. The actual disruption to my concentration from the physical movement would last 10 seconds, whereas that train of thought, why did you move? You didn't have to move so quickly. Yesterday you lasted longer and you're always the first one to move, you know. And, and being completely lost in it would sometimes last 35, 45 minutes. Um, and it was an absolute waste of time. So there's, there needs to be a certain sense of being able to let go of what's going on and begin again. Begin again in, in the sense of an attitude, a, a stance of watching, of being mindful. So I think what's coming up in your mind are very tricky kinds of thought patterns. Um, there's doubt, there's uncertainty, there's trying to figure something out, there's uh, some self-assessment you know, all of that, and if at all possible, try to note it as thinking. It's a little bit like a, um, you know, that image that we use sometimes, one of the kinds of, of monkey traps that they have in Asia um, is one where they, they spread out an area of tar and the monkey comes along and sticks one foot. <laughs> Is that the right uh, anatomical term? Um, one foot, let's say, in, in the tar and gets stuck. And so to try to somehow get themselves out, they stick in the other foot and then one paw and then the other paw. And then finally, the monkey puts its head down in the tar. And um, that's a hopeless situation. Uh, because the monkey could not see beyond into a different context. You know, the, they use that example, uh, like in the text, to say, well, uh, right next to that patch of tar might have been a tree, and the monkey could have grabbed hold of the tree and pulled itself out, but it didn't. You know, it stayed within that extremely circumscribed area, somehow trying to find the answer trying to find their salvation within that extremely circumscribed area, and it's not going to work. It's just more and more and more stuckness. 
the only way to get out is to see things in a whole other way. You know, it's, it's to take in a, a much uh, bigger picture. It's like grabbing onto that tree. You know, so um, it may feel ineffectual, but if you can possibly note the thoughts as thoughts, that's like grabbing onto the tree. You know, you'll see it in a different way. My object of primary attention is breath and I observe in the nose and um, I've been using the note in the notes in out in the two sides of the inhalation and exhalation and I'm wondering um, would it sometimes be appropriate to note uh, the sensation more specifically such as you know cool or like on the in and tingling on the out and where do you where do you decide whether to note sensation or a more general referential kind of a note? Similarly, in, in reaching for the doorknob, is it is it reaching, or or do you, should you note you know sort of the, the movement of the arm? Okay, yeah, this is a great question. Um, did you all hear it? Uh, basically, we try to use noting in the simplest way possible, and for the most part, that means. Uh, the more general of, of each of what the instances that you described. Um, in reaching, if, we, if you say the note reaching very quietly at the beginning of the movement, it frames it, you know, it, it brings your attention there. Um, uh, you're more fully present in a simple way. You don't have to note reaching, bending, twisting, turning, um, because what will happen will be you'll end up with your arm outstretched looking for a word for, for what you're feeling. And that's not really what it's about. Uh, it's really much more just frame the experience with the note so that you're more present. And a similar thing in the sitting. It's fine just to note in and out. Um, you may observe coolness, throbbing, pulsing, vibrating, heat, whatever, with, with the actual sensations of the breath, but you don't have to note them in that way. Don't overnote, as we sometimes say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I think noting, uh, it's a somewhat awkward tool, but if you can learn how to do it quietly enough and simply enough um, and in the right rhythm, it can be a tremendous support. You know, I wouldn't try to do it in a rapid-fire way. Uh, but in most instances, it's useful to even occasionally bring in a note. Uh, for one thing, it raises your energy. Um, and it's very easy in practice to get into, especially as time goes on, you know, not maybe so much in the beginning, but as uh, time goes on, it's very easy to get into a kind of dreamy, drifty state, you know, which is very soft and pleasant, and um, it's like an oozing consciousness. <laughs> And because it's pleasant, we tend to like being in there and just oozing. 
uh, and it comes because the mind is getting softer and concentration is building, but there's not really enough energy or clarity in, in our being at that moment to balance the, the softness of the concentration. And so we kind of go into that state and if it deepens enough, we just fall asleep. Noting actually takes some effort and because it takes effort, we don't like it, but also because it takes effort, it generates a certain amount of energy in our, in our being and that energy will balance out that, that other state. An example I often use is um, something that happened to me here in the hall a few years ago when I came in at 8.15 to lead the sitting and I was supposed to be doing instructions. Um, and I sat down and closed my eyes and almost immediately went into that oozy state, you know, and it felt really good and I was just kind of floating along, dreaming and drifting and then I had the thought, well, maybe I should note. And, and I started noting and all of a sudden the clouds cleared away and I realized that 15 or 20 minutes had gone by and I hadn't said a word <laughs> and that everybody was sitting there waiting for me to give the instructions. So I rang the bell at the end of the sitting and um, I said what had happened and I gave a strong plug for mental noting. <laughs> I said, well, this is what happens, you know. You sit down and you just kind of space out and it's really nice, but if you actually make the effort to do some noting, it will rebalance what's going on, you know, and, and it will be a much clearer state. Yeah. Can you talk about the difference between um, going back and forth between light knowing when things are just coming up softly, which I think is a kind of concentration, and then going into a deeper state where you just, where it feels much more. The noting is stronger? The noting and the feeling of being with what's coming up seems to be more connected. And in talking to Carol, she said the deep the first time I described this actually the point of this practice. But trying to understand the flow of going back and forth between Well, if I understand you correctly, um, Well, there are a couple of things. Uh, one is that I think there's a natural rhythm that changes in terms of how close or how distant objects appear. Um, the, uh, the feeling tone changes at different times and that I think is an inevitable movement of the mind, you know, through different patterns. Um, I always hesitate to define good practice as any one thing uh, because of that huge, huge tendency to cling and condemn. Uh, practice feels different all of the time and uh, there's no absolute one right way it's supposed to feel. But because we cherish that, that idea, we use it to judge ourselves, you know, terribly. Um, 
The other thing is that you can check to see whether you feel you are aiming the attention at what's actually happening or it's a much more diffuse awareness and you can check to see your energetic level in terms of moving toward what's happening or moving away from it or simply meeting it. I know Michelle used the example once of um, the fork and the potato and I almost always use broccoli when I use it but everyone started coming in to see me talking about forks and potatoes so um, the technical side of the practice is said to be contained in that extremely simple example. They use it all the time in Burma where they actually use meat as an example. <laughs> um, in your hand you're holding a fork and there's a piece of some kind of food on a plate. The idea is that to, to connect just deeply enough with the fork and the piece of food in order to lift it and eat it you need two things. One is this quality of aim. If you just take the fork and wave it around in the air you're not going to get a lot to eat. But then the other thing you need is the right amount of energy. If you have too little energy then it's like the fork just hangs there in your hand. Whereas if you have too much energy it's like you take the fork and you bash it through whatever it is, through the plate perhaps, everything goes flying and again you don't get very much to eat. The whole technical side as I said of meditation is said to be contained in this example. We have an object of the present moment we have to aim the attention toward just it. In metta that may be the phrases, in vipassana it may be the breath, it may be a sound, it may be a sensation in the body, maybe anything. But this is our only concern is aiming the attention just toward that experience. We don't have to worry about everything else that has already happened. We don't have to anticipate what has not yet come. We don't have to get tense and get ready and try to prepare for it. It's just this one right now. That's the aiming. And then we need a certain sensitivity about the energetic application or the quality of connection we're having with that experience. Are we way, way, way back? You know, too far back so that we could not care less what this breath felt like. Or are we getting a stranglehold on it? You know, trying to probe too deeply or get in too deeply or force something to happen or prevent something else from happening? Are we really holding on tight or grabbing or jabbing that fork right through that plate? And we, we do everything. We practice in a way with a sensitivity to feeling the particular imbalance of the moment and then just coming back. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Burma where I would actually just visualize a piece of broccoli on a plate and a fork and I would practice aiming and connecting. And I'd suddenly say, oh yeah, I'm way, way, way forward. I need to relax. You know, or I'm way, way, way back. I need to wake up a little bit. You know, so, so that is, that's almost like where the technique lies is in aiming and then sustaining the attention with all things following from there. You know, so if you feel 
distant, if you feel vague, if you feel too light, you might just look at that. If you feel too intent, you know, like you're, you're trying to push through things or, or you're trying to get a stranglehold on the breath to keep other things from happening or whatever, you know, practice you're doing, then you might look at that as well and see if it's time just to relax, to come back. But that's, that's all the doing that we have to do. Um, and it will just feel differently at different times. Okay, it's time to walk. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.